Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's good to be back with you for another study in the Word of God. Today, we're going to head to Daniel 6. Make your way there if you can. An elderly man was in his final hours of life. He was lying in bed near death. He suddenly smelled the aroma of his favorite chocolate chip cookies baking down in the kitchen. He gathered up his remaining strength and lifted himself up from the bed, something the doctors didn't even think was possible. Leaning against the wall, he slowly made his way out of the bedroom, and with even greater effort, he forced himself down the stairs, gripping onto the railing with both hands. At the bottom of the stairs, his breathing was difficult, and so he leaned against the door frame, gazing into the kitchen. And were it not for the pain and the agony of being close to death, he would have thought that he was already in heaven, because there, spread out on the kitchen table, were hundreds of his favorite chocolate chip cookies. He thought that perhaps this was one last final act of love from his devoted wife, seeing to it that he left this world a happy, happy man. And gathering up one last great final effort, he threw himself toward the table. He landed on his knees. His lips parted. He could almost taste them. It almost seemed like the smell of these cookies was bringing him back to life. His withered hand was shaking, but it slowly reached up and made its way to a cookie on the edge of the table. When suddenly, out of nowhere, his hand was smacked with a spatula by his wife. And then she said to him, stay out of those. Those are for the funeral. Well, you know, it's bad when you're still alive and the cookies are being made for your funeral. And in our text, we have a group of men who are already planning for Daniel's funeral. Daniel 6, let's go ahead and read our first five verses. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these, three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Flip back just a second to the very end of chapter 5. Take another look at verse 31 of chapter 5. Notice the text. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The Medes and the Persians had taken over Babylon. Darius takes over the Babylonian kingdom at the age of 62, and now we have ourselves a problem. History mentions no man by the name of Darius the Mede, so we don't know for sure who this man was. Let me just mention the theory that makes the most sense to me. I think he was a man that was simply appointed to rule over this newly conquered territory. Cyrus was the king over Medo-Persia, and Darius was probably appointed by Cyrus to rule over the old Babylonian empire. Now, Darius takes over Babylon, and just like any other new leader coming into power, he sets up his administration. First, he set 
120 satraps. They were the leaders over the provinces. Then above them were three governors. So what you had were 120 satraps who reported to the three governors, who in turn reported to Darius. Pretty simple setup. Verse 2 teaches us that Daniel was appointed as one of these three governors who reported directly to our man Darius. Now Daniel at this point is now over 80 years old. And the text teaches us the reason that Darius set up these governors over the satraps so was that the king, the king here referring to Darius, he appointed these leaders in order that he might not suffer loss. These men were to keep an eye on things, keep the taxes coming in, keep the people happy so there was no revolts against the government. Daniel was just the guy for the job. He'd been serving in Babylon now for over 60 years. And notice the wording in the second half of verse 3. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. The king was thinking about making him his second in command. If Daniel was made in charge of the governors, he would be the only one to report directly to the king. But jealousy set in, and simply being a Jew was enough to make you despised by some of the people. The elevation of a Jew to such a prestigious position was something they could not allow. Same is true today, and as we march closer and closer to the return of Christ, this same type of hatred for the Jews is going to increase once again. Therefore, verse 4 teaches us that the governors and the satraps. So think about this. That would be the other two governors and the 120 satraps. Daniel was a little outnumbered. These men were trying to find, as verse 4 puts it, some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Don't ever feel you're alone when you have someone trying to find fault with you. Daniel and many men and women of God have been there. These men were simply looking for Daniel to make a mistake in how he managed the affairs of Babylon. Look at the last half of verse 4. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. They looked and looked, but they couldn't find anything. Verse 5. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Jealousy had run its course. They couldn't find anything in Daniel's life or work that would undermine him before the king. Jealousy is a powerful motivator, and when men want to take you out but they can't find a legitimate reason, they either lie about you or make it a matter of your faith. And that is exactly what these clowns did. They made up a charge on the grounds of Daniel's obedience to the laws of his God. And really what they did was put Daniel in a place where he was going to have to choose whether he obeyed the government or he obeyed his God. I fear that the church of Christ is soon going to be forced to make this same decision in the United States. Let's pick up our text again with verse 6. So these governors and satraps thronged him before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statue and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, established a decree and signed the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore King Darius signed the written decree. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with the windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. 
Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you. O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself, and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king, and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no decree or statue which the king establishes may be changed." Verse 6, as the rulers going before the king, keep in mind that the Jewish faith was not illegal. There's no way that these guys could have gone before the king asking him to make the Jewish faith illegal. He wouldn't have done it. It wouldn't have worked. There was simply no reason to make it illegal. So the plan had to be a little more tricky. Couldn't be so obvious. Notice the idea in verse 7. They tell the king that all the high-ranking leaders got together and supposedly... They decided that the king should make a law that if you were caught praying to anyone other than the king during this period of 30 days, it would mean being thrown into the lion's den. Flattery is all it was. They were telling him that they actually recognized him as the religious leader and that for 30 days, all prayer should be directed towards him. 30 days was all they needed to trap Daniel. And if it was longer than this, if it was longer than 30 days... The king probably wouldn't have gone through with it because the priests of the pagan temples, well, they would have protested. So Daniel didn't agree with this law. So the statement here that all the governors and leaders agreed with this, this was an obvious lie. Darius is being praised and honored by the leaders, and I think he forgot that Daniel was Jewish. Now, verse 9, it teaches that the king signed the document. He should have wondered about the motives of these guys with all their sudden attention to making sure he was honored but he didn't. Remember the custom. Any law that was put into effect, it couldn't be revoked even by the king. So once a law was established, that was it. There was no turning back. And the reason that they had such a tradition was because in their culture, the king was infallible. In other words, at least on paper, they believed that the king could never make a mistake. And if the king were to change a law, it would show that he was capable of making a mistake. And you couldn't have that. So therefore, laws could never be changed or reversed. The book of Esther, if you remember, takes place a few years after this. And under the rule of this same Medo-Persian empire, in Esther 119, we see another example of this law taking place, that an edict of the king, it could not be changed. Starting in verse 10, we see the character of Daniel. He knew the document had been signed, but still, what did he do? He went home, he went to his upper room, and his windows were open towards Jerusalem. Now, Daniel had been captive for a long time. He'd been captive from his homeland for over 66 years. And even though the decree had been made law by the king, he continued to get down on his knees and pray and give thanks to God. He did this three times a day. This was his pattern that he had done before the law went into effect. David and Solomon had established this pattern of prayer of three times a day facing the temple of the Lord. Even though at this point the temple and the city of Jerusalem still were in ruins, 
Try to keep in mind that for these Old Testament saints, that is where the people interacted with the Lord in the temple. Even today, many Jews will still face Jerusalem while they pray. Turn, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 8. In this passage, Solomon is praying at the dedication of the temple. Notice what he says, 1 Kings chapter 8, and we'll start with verse 44. When you people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord towards the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who led them away captive, notice this next part, and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen in the temple which I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Solomon was praying that the people would continue to turn their hearts back to the Lord, that they would continue to fellowship with the Lord and give thanks to him that they would repent of their sins. But notice in this passage the teaching about praying to the Lord towards the city which God has chosen, praying towards Jerusalem and the temple. Jerusalem belongs to God. Jerusalem belongs to the Hebrew people, and one day it will be fully returned to them because God chose this city long before the Muslim religion was invented. The Muslims actually took the idea of praying towards Mecca from the Jews praying towards Jerusalem. Back in Daniel now, keep in mind that the presence of God had departed the Jewish temple before the fall of Jerusalem. Ezekiel 11.23 mentions this. So why did Daniel still pray to Jerusalem? If the glory of God, the presence of God, had departed the temple, why should he still face it when he prayed? Ezekiel 43 promises that the Lord will return there. Daniel knew this. And Daniel knew that according to Jeremiah 29.10, that one day the Lord would restore Jerusalem, which was about to take place. We'll talk about this in a little bit. Daniel knew about this law that was passed by Darius, but he continues on with his prayer three times a day on his knees. Apparently, Daniel's enemies knew when he had his time of prayer. The New Testament does teach us in Acts 1 and Mark 14 that the Jews would use their upper rooms as a place of prayer. This was common. For Daniel, this was his custom. He'd been doing it for years. This is what I love about his testimony. He didn't open the window and just do it for show just because he thought he could make a point. You see some of that mindset in the United States, praying publicly, even though prayer life at home is found wanting. Daniel had been doing this for years. His enemies knew that he would stay faithful to God even if such a law was passed, because otherwise the trap never would have worked. When Daniel found out, he went home and prayed in his upper room. He didn't stop praying. He didn't close the windows or pray in another room out of sight because this would have ruined his consistent testimony of his faith in God. Now, verse 11 teaches the men got together. We don't know the situation. We don't know how they spied on Daniel. Maybe they were outside. Maybe they were in the second story of a different building. doesn't matter. The bottom line is that they were waiting for him to pray and break the law of the land. 
And then the wording indicates they rushed in, catching Daniel in the act. This causes them in verses 12 and 13 to go before the king and report back that Daniel had broken the law. Daniel wasn't praying to the king. He was praying to the God of the Jews. It's clear that the king was close to Daniel. He was going to make him second in command, but he couldn't change the law. Notice they pointed out in verse 13 that Daniel was a foreigner. Daniel was a captive from Judah. And in that culture, if you were from a foreign nation, it was expected that you would work harder to show your allegiance and devotion to both king and country. Look at the king's reaction in verse 14. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. I like that the king was mad at himself for his mistake. It's so easy to blame others when you fail. The king continued to try to think of a way to not break the law, but to find a way out of having to throw Daniel into the lion's den. The reason that the king was so urgent was because their custom was to execute the person the same day that they were caught in a crime. So right up until sunset, the king tried to think of a way to get Daniel out of this. And look at verse 15. These other rulers, the ones that were trying to have Daniel killed, they reminded the king that he couldn't change the law. Nice guys. Let's read the rest of our text. Pick it up with verse 16. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of the lions. Them, their children, and their wives, and the lions overpowered them, and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The king was backed into a corner, and at this point, the king had no other choice. He had to obey the law and have Daniel thrown in. So Daniel was thrown into this pit. Why a lion's pit? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar liked to burn people. Why did these people prefer using a lion's pit to kill people? 
To the Persians, fire was sacred, so to them it would have been an abomination to kill someone in a fire. So they had to come up with a different way of killing people. And this pit, it had a hole at the top where they could throw food in for the lions, or they could put people that were to be executed into the pit through this opening. And it had an entrance on the side where the lion would come in. Now Daniel was an old man at this point, but he's thrown into the pit. King regrets it, so he leans over to encourage Daniel, and he tells him in verse 16 that, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Pretty remarkable that Daniel was so faithful in his testimony that the king was able to say, Whom you serve continually. I pray that my own testimony becomes this strong. Then what they did in verse 17 to seal the pit, they would roll a large stone in front of the opening so that Daniel couldn't get out. And they'd put some soft clay on the rock, and the king and his nobles pushed their signet rings into the clay. It was a way of stamping their royal signatures on the door. That way, anyone who came by would know that Daniel was to remain in the pit by order of the king. In this empire, the king didn't have as much power as the kings of Babylon had. Here, they were more limited, like nobles. So the seals of the nobles indicated that the king had fulfilled the legal requirements of the law. But the seal of the king indicated that if the person, in this case Daniel, if he would somehow survive the lion's pit, which was completely unheard of, but if he survived, he would not be executed some other way. If he made it through the night, he was a free man. Verse 18 says that the king went off to his palace. He spent the night fasting and his sleep fled from him. He was so worried about Daniel, he couldn't sleep. The text tells us that no musicians were brought before him. Almost on a nightly basis, the king would have music and entertainment brought before him, but not this night. The king would feast, drink, and be entertained. But here the king wasn't even able to sleep. In verse 19, the king got up at the break of day. Notice the wording, he went in haste to the den of the lions. The king gets close to the den. The wording is powerful in verse 20. It says the king cried out with a lamenting voice. He must have thought that Daniel was dead. He must have thought that all he would have heard was the sound of lions. So the king shouts out to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Not just as the king crying out to see if Daniel was still alive, but he called Daniel servant of the living God. Quite a statement in a world that worshipped dead statues. Daniel's God was alive, and so was Daniel. But look, Darius was understanding the validity of faith in the Hebrew God, that Yahweh has the power to control circumstances and deliver those who trust in him. That's a lesson that we often need to be reminded of. It's not that God kept Daniel from facing difficult situations in life. It is simply that God could deliver him during those times. God did what the king could not do. He kept Daniel alive. God had sent an angel, and the angel shut the lion's mouth. Lions, plural. This wasn't one little nice kitty cat in the corner. Lions, plural. It's notable to me that Daniel knew of the angel, meaning he must have seen the angel. The angel protected Daniel because, as it says in verse 22, Daniel was found innocent before God and the king, and because he had done no wrong. Again, Daniel made sure that God received all the credit for protecting him. It was Daniel's faithfulness to God that got him into trouble, and it was his faith in God that got him out of it. And certainly we see this referenced in Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Faith, that his faith stopped the mouth of lions. With verse 23, we learn that the king ordered them to get Daniel out of the pit, and no injury was found on him because he had trusted God. 
Notice then the judgment by the king and by God in verse 24. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Not just the men that accused Daniel, but their families as well. They all got thrown in. This was the custom. It was considered to be the swift execution of justice, to have the entire families of the offender executed as well. Even though this was a pagan nation, there was a biblical principle for Israel. Deuteronomy 19 taught that a false witness was to bear the fate of what he intended to do to the other person. But even with that, the Mosaic law, unlike the laws of the nations of their time, the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 24 taught that the family should not be put to death for the sins of the fathers. Now, the text doesn't tell us if it was just the ringleaders or if all the leaders and their families were put to death. But as soon as they were put in, they didn't even make it to the bottom of the pit. The lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. In other words, they became lion food. Keep in mind that Darius is ruling over the old Babylonian kingdom, and he wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that were living within this territory. He made a decree that the people in his kingdom should fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. This meant that they should respect and worship the God of Daniel. We see Darius praising God in this public statement. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, it appears that Darius might have placed his faith for salvation in the God of the Jews. Once again, we see religious freedom was given to the Jews by this decree. We have a new government in control of the land. Daniel was once again put to the test, but another testimony to the people of the God of the Hebrews is sent out throughout the land. It was made known that the God of the Jews was to be feared and respected. And the Hebrew people could once again know that even though it was a dark and difficult time for them, God had not abandoned them. Put this into perspective. Yes, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah were hauled off to Babylon, but under the Babylonian government and under the Persian government, the Jewish people retained their freedom to worship their God. And we know from the book of Ezra that either right before this or in just a few months after this, the Jews were allowed to return to Judah, still under the control of the Medo Persians, but the return to the land had begun. The rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem had begun, and the decree had been given that all the vessels of the Jewish temple, the things that were stolen by Nebuchadnezzar, used by Belshazzar at the feast in chapter 5, these things were given back to the Jews for the temple. If you read Ezra 6, you find out that the king even helped to pay for the rebuilding of the temple. And our text wraps up by telling us that Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The best we can tell that not too long after this, Daniel retired from public service, devoting himself to studying the Word of God and prayer. The revelation that we will see in chapters 10 through 12, he received in the third year of the reign of Cyrus. And then this book of the Bible was completed around 532 B.C. Clarence Jordan was a man of unusual abilities and commitment. He had two PhDs, one in agriculture and one in Greek and Hebrew. This was a gifted man that could have chosen to do anything he wanted. He chose to serve the poor. In the 1940s, he founded a farm in America's Georgia. It was a community for poor whites and poor blacks. As you might guess, such an idea did not go over well in the Deep South in the 1940s. 
Most of the resistance came from church people, men and women, who claimed to be Christians. Christians who followed the laws of segregation just as much as the other folks in town. The people of the town tried everything they could to stop Clarence. They tried to boycott him. They slashed the tires of the workers when they came to town. Over and over for 14 years, they tried to stop him. Finally, in 1954, the Ku Klux Klan had had enough of Clarence Jordan, so they decided to get rid of him once and for all. They came one night with guns and torches and set fire to every building on the farm, except this house, which they riddled with bullets. They chased off all the families, except one black family who refused to leave. Clarence recognized the voices of many of the Klansmen. Many of them were people he knew from church. Another man was a reporter for the local newspaper. The next day, this same reporter had the audacity to come out and see what remained of the farm. The rubble still smoldered. The land was scorched, but he found Clarence out in the field digging and planting. I heard the awful news, he called out to Clarence, and I came out to do a story on the tragedy of your farm closing. Clarence just kept digging and planting, but the reporter kept at it. He kept trying to prod, to poke, trying to get a rise out of this quietly determined man who was planting instead of packing his bags. Finally, the reporter said in a haughty voice, Well, Dr. Jordan, you got two of them PhDs and you've put 14 years into this farm. There's nothing left of it at all. Just how successful do you think you've been? Well, Clarence stopped planting. He turned toward the reporter with his penetrating blue eyes and said quietly but firmly, about as successful as the cross, Sir, I don't think you understand us. What we're about is not success, but faithfulness. We're staying. Good day. And beginning that day, Clarence and those with him rebuilt the farm, and it is still growing strong to this day. Many years ago, a famous pastor wrote these words, quote, The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. Attitude is more important than appearances, giftedness, or skill. Attitude will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude that we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people act a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string that we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me, and 90% how I react to it. And I would add one more thing to those profound words, is that the attitude we are called to is faithfulness. Faithfulness to Christ. Faithfulness to his word. That is the message that is wrapped up in the first six chapters of Daniel. One last thought I'd like to leave you with before we end chapter 6. In the life of Daniel, the most powerful nations during this time of the Gentile kings was the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian empires. Before the captivity, before the time that the Jews were allowed by God to be controlled by Gentile nations, it was thought that the kings were all-powerful, that they were supreme and could do anything they wanted. By the end of Daniel's life, during this time of the Gentiles, we see that the world had been corrected. Kings came and went. Nations came and went. God didn't need Babylon. He didn't need the Medes or the Persians. And I think it's important for us to remember that one of the key lessons of the first six chapters of Daniel is that God 
rules over the affairs of mankind, no matter who is in charge on the earthly scene. And mankind is simply incapable of ruling the world on its own. Before I sign off, I just want to remind you that if you do not have our free app, be sure to check it out. You can find out more about it on our webpage, returntotheword.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in and studying the Word of God with us. If you like what you've heard, tell others. Help us to spread the message of God's amazing grace. We'll see you next time. And I pray that you will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.